This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to Pass the Mic. I'm Bo, the producer of Pass the Mic, and with me is the former host. I'm just kidding. He's the co-host <laughs> of Pass the Mic, Jamar Tisby. Can always count on Bo York for a hard time. <laughs> Not a good time, but a hard time. Come on, man. Sure. <laughs> Hopefully a bit of both. Uh, we are here, and of course, we're giving kind of Tyler a break. In fact, this is one of a few episodes. It'll be in kind of like a series of episodes. I don't know if they'll air all together or they'll kind of be uh, uh, spread out. Uh, a little bit over time, but regardless, it's a, a chance to give Tyler, one of the hardest working men in podcasting, uh, a br- break a for breather, a bit. Yes. <laughs> it'll be like, it'll be like, uh, apparently some people put M&Ms in their popcorn, what? like a, like a sweet, salty, okay, savory okay. kind of thing. And yeah. so like these episodes will be sprinkled throughout like the M&Ms in the popcorn. There you go. Yeah. It's like, Hey, it's a treat. <laughs> Hopefully people will see it as a treat and not like, well, okay, but when's Tyler getting back? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's there's a whole cache of old episodes. If you miss him, go back and listen to one. He'll be back in the future too. But there's there's more you can access. That's right. It's been several years for sure, and uh, some great great episodes in there. Man, I, I I know I haven't been on the mic in forever. On past the mic, and uh, you know it's it's funny. I was giving you a little bit of a hard time before we started. Uh, uh, you know, press and record here, but uh, iTunes algorithm now qu- qualifies you as a guest on past the oh mic. My. So, yeah, you you hate it when we give you a hard time for that, but now it's literally the algorithm is giving you a hard time. Oh my. Well, okay. Well, we all know the problems with algorithms. Algorithms help boost anti-vax messages and (laughs) the big lie messages about the election. So you want to trust an algorithm, go for it. I would advise against it, but that's up to you. All right. All right. Fair enough. Or, or you could just try to prove the algorithm wrong. Be yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Man, we've got a, we got a fun show. This is going to be a very unique episode uh, this week. We're talking about that, uh, that notes app that we all have on our phone. You know, the one, the one that you open up when you've got that thing you want to say and you type it out, you might have, you know, gotten a little bold, opened up Twitter. You might've gone on Facebook, whatever it might be. You start pounding in that message and then you, before you hit that, that send button, that, that second comes into the Holy Spirit, grabbing your thumb back and pulling it back and then copying and pasting into that notes app. We're talking about the tweets that you don't tweet <laughs> this week. <laughs> I'll pass the mic. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's a reason we don't tweet them. So it begs the question, why are we podcasting about them? Ooh. Uh, but maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll just see where it goes. I've got some good ones. I look, it's it's one of one of these things where you know the beauty of podcast. You know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a podcast apologist, right? Like I I'm a big fan of the medium, and I think that it gives you the opportunity to expand on a thought, you know, and do so in a very raw and real way. And that can be controversial at times. It can kind of force people to listen to a perspective they might not agree with. Uh, but the point is, you actually have time to really marinate in someone else's perspective, feelings, or whatever they might be. Whereas a tweet, when you're kind of Stuck to a couple of uh, characters, all context, all like the tone is not there. The history is not there. You know, it get it gets spread around virally in a way that podcasts just 
it can't. And some people hate that about podcasts. They wish they could be spread around virally more. I mean, we know from experience that, yes, in fact, a podcast can go viral, Mm -hmm. but not to the extent that a tweet is where it can be taken completely out of context. Because even those that take quotes from podcasts out of context still have to point back to the episode that contains the full receipts. So, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's an argument for why we can talk about some of these things here. For sure. For sure. Um, We can unpack some things a little bit more in depth. And I think folks who listen to Pass the Mic know us well enough and longtime listeners know you well enough to understand some of the context, even if we don't get to verbalize it. But I am eager for the chance to get to get some things off my chest. Okay. All right. This is great. This is like this is like the therapy <laughs> type deal. All right. So do you, let me just ask you this. Do you have that notes app? Yes. Well, yeah. not the notes app. I mean, I just keep it on my in my drafts and on Twitter. Oh, you keep it in your drafts. That's bold, sir. <laughs> you never know. You never know when <laughs> you're 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 just out of your cup of care is empty and you just want to tweet it and you don't yeah. want to transfer it or anything. So yeah, it's in my drafts. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. How often, I mean, because we're going to get to some of the actual tweets for sure, but I, I am curious, like how often do they make it from the drafts then to the group, to the group chat? Well, there's sort of two levels of the drafts. One level is relatively innocuous. I type up the tweet and, you know, algorithms, back to algorithms, it's a bad time of the day to tweet it. It's during, you know, rush hour or or whatever or late at night or early early in the morning so i just save it in drafts and then i'll tweet it out at a better time when more people are are procrastinating on a social media app uh so that's one level the other level which i think people are interested in what we'll talk about is the stuff that's kind of edgy that's mm. kind of uh this could go really well in terms of making a really short punchy pithy message, or it could go really badly because people don't understand what I'm saying, or I'm not clear. And I get ratioed <laughs> where they just like <laughs> give you all kinds of negative feedback uh, in the comments section way more than they retweet you in a, in a positive way. So those make it to the light of day, I would probably say only about 10 to 15% of the time. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, I, I should mention that th- I, I'm coming at this conversation very much to tee you up for a number of reasons. One is that I, I, I have little to no right to be able to to jump into this conversation at all because I left Twitter uh, right. early this year. <laughs> like, Here we go. Yes, this is a very convenient <laughs> topic for you. We're no longer on the app. Right, right. No, I, I, I look, look, 2020 was a difficult year for all of us. Yes. <laughs> and I think I bit off a little bit more than I could social media chew, so to speak, in the midst of the quarantine. And I realized, you know what? I need, I need a full on purge. So, I mean, I straight up deleted Facebook. My, my profile is gone. They're like, are you sure? But we have all your pictures. I was like, delete them. They're gone. Mm. I don't care. I'm good. Uh, so that, all, that's all completely gone. Twitter, I, I, I may have buried more of my Twitter handle than deleted it because, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I might come back. <laughs> but I, for all intents and purposes, I am kind of I'm, I'm off social media and I, but I've been missing it, man. I've been missing, especially from the standpoint of it provides this kind of nice connection tool for people that, you know, for sure, for one thing, you kind of feel like you're still in community with one another while you're all scattered around the world. Um, but also because, you know, a lot of times 
the uh, the drama happens on Twitter, mm-hmm. and and without being on Twitter, you know, on the one hand, you're you're free from that burden of knowing the drama, but on the other hand, you kind of feel like you're a little disconnected from what's going on with everybody, especially those of you in the trenches. So, right, I mean, news happens at at sort of the speed of light on Twitter as compared to any other platform. In in my view, um, there are. I, I was just looking at some poll the other day where they looked at various social media platforms and it turns out the majority of people who get their news from some sort of social media site get it from YouTube which mm-hmm. I didn't know was a thing I don't know maybe they're watching like CNN yeah. on YouTube or something like that like a legit news outlet but they're just getting it via that platform but the second one for a lot of people was Twitter which I totally understand. This is a this is a sort of tangential story, but it speaks to the speed of news on Twitter. <laughs> right. This is a couple years back. I, I laugh, but it's like trauma laughter. Mm-hmm. So this is a couple years back when the previous president was president and was posturing, making all kinds of belligerent gestures toward North Korea that was Ooh. suspected of arming itself. I, I think it did have ballistic missiles. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's right in the middle of that. And like, there's, there's a legit conversation about, will this escalate to full on like ballistic missile attacks and nuclear war? So it was in the middle of that. We were in a much needed vacation in Hawaii. I'm not ashamed to say it was awesome. Mm-hmm. We were on our very last day. There was a last morning, as a matter of fact. And we get these alerts on our cell phones that say ballistic missile attack. And, and, and the thing that really got us was the very next line says, this is not a test. Yeah, it's real. And this, it's like the emergency, like the Amber Alert kind of thing you get on your cell phone. It 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 it, it pushes you a notification uh, through everything, through all the other noise, and it's there. And so we're stuck on this island, thinking North Korea has launched a ballistic missile. This is going to be another like Pearl Harbor kind of thing. And there's nowhere to go. There's nothing we can do. And we couldn't figure out if it was legit or not. And 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 so we, we kept checking television, Facebook. And nobody knew of it, but the first platform that started talking about it was, of course, Twitter. So in the life and death emergency, it, 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 by the way, it turned out not to be real. Somebody pressed the wrong button. And, uh, <laughs> but man, you don't know that at the time when they're, when they're telling you you're about to die. Like, they, listen, the longest 30 plus minutes of my life. Yeah. You just didn't know. Yeah. So, and and then it only became official, official. We got, we got some local notification, but we, we, we could only really sort of uh, take a deep breath and, and realize we weren't going to die in that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once it started to hit uh, news channels, which put it on Twitter first. Man, there you go. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a powerful medium. And um, now the YouTube thing doesn't surprise me. You can get a lot of trash on YouTube, uh, news takes on YouTube for sure. And the instant uploadability of anything is very similar to Twitter, but man, let's get into it. Let's, let's talk about some of these tweets. You don't tweet, which one you want to talk about first, which one are you going to pitch up? Okay. So this one is more of a wording thing. So a lot of my tweets, it's not because I'm sort of afraid of any sort of backlash or disagreement. It's because you got 240 characters or even in a thread, it, it, it can be difficult to try to convey it. This one, I still don't think I have the wording quite right. But since we're audio first here and we can explain it, maybe, maybe folks will understand. So here's here's what it says. It's just one tweet. It says, the greatest epistemic trick white supremacy pulled 
is getting people to believe the most outlandish conspiracy theories and outright lies. Meanwhile, black people are killed by cops and vigilantes literally on camera. And people are like, well, we don't know the whole story. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, so, is that, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That could, that could, that could play. That I could think play. so. I think so. But it, 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 with Twitter, of course, you've got to anticipate the blowback and, mm-hmm. you know, the worst faith argument that people could make. And so, um, it's even little things like this. This is some, some, some very inside Jamar Tisby's Twitter head. Um, the uh, giving a superlative like the greatest epistemic mm, trick, uh, right? Yeah, there you then go. Then the immediate retort is like, "Well, is it the greatest one? What about this? What about that?" And so then, <laughs> is it better to say a a big one or a frequent one or an important trick it pulls, right? To to hedge it a little bit to cut that stuff off. And then the other part uh, of what I wasn't so sure about it is. The second part about, you know, black people being killed on camera, and uh, I just didn't want people to think that's the only instance, right? Right, So, right. So what I'm trying to convey with this tweet is with white supremacy, far right fundamentalist groups, you have things like Pizzagate, where there are whole sort of like Reddit channels and, and um elaborate conspiracy theories around pedophile rings that are happening in pizzerias in Washington, DC. Hmm. Right. And, Hmm. and that gets some level of credence from people. Meanwhile, you have stuff that that's obviously false. Right. But then you have stuff that's obviously true. Like Joe Biden won the election, like uh, vaccines work, like, Black people are brutalized by police at disproportionate rates. And those things, you have to absolutely bend over backwards, run a marathon through fire, uh, barefoot, just to get people to maybe give it a a hearing, let alone believe it. And that's one of the tricks that white supremacy pulls is it, it makes the absolutely implausible and unbelievable somehow feasible to the people who buy into it. And at the same time, at the exact same time, it makes that which is factual and evident and true uh, much more doubtful in their minds. And it's so, so frustrating. I feel like you know the tactics that we've tried to apply in the past, maybe societally or otherwise is kind of the notion that we need like saturation of education or a saturation of information. But I really think that like, you know, we need to look at it from like, like we need to look at kind of these uh, very deep entrenched white supremacy mindsets as more of like these people are trapped in a cult. And like, how do you talk to somebody who's in a cult? You can't just provide them information. It's almost like they're wired specifically. They're socially conditioned to make any and all excuses for anything that kind of protects this particular worldview. And man, yeah, it's, it's infuriating, but no, you're right. The, I think what you said too, is the, the wording here can be a little tricky if you're going to uh, put this out here in a tweet, uh, the, you know, especially to be truth tellers, we also need to make sure that we're not falling into that thing that we love to do, which is the, uh, you know, this is the biggest thing of all time, right, you know, right, that right. Whole deal that we're it's all guilty. Sensationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot of sensationalism that I've had to kind of self-moderate in the past, uh, when it comes to almost practically anything from like the smallest thing, like, uh, you know, hot takes on Marvel movies 
to, you know, larger issues. And it's, it's rough because we've just come out of the season. I think we're still in the season uh, to be sure where sensationalism is what sells. And yet all the more reason why we have to be very like, uh, in my mind, anyway, we have to be very, very surgical and we have to be very precise. And that precision is it doesn't always come out and tweets the way we want it to. That's right. That's right. And and I, it's it's very important because it's, it gets to your sort of credibility mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the sort of social media sphere where if you if you do come. I mean, we all make mistakes and missteps and overstate things or, or even understate things. I'm not talking about that. But but if you sort of. Are, are in it for the clicks, then the temptation to sensationalize something is going to be that much m- more strong, that much stronger. And then it, the sort of discerning social media consumer, and there are those folks out there, um, th- they won't give you as much credibility because they can't take you at your word or it'll feel like it, you're exaggerating. So if, if, if we want to be known as truth tellers, which and and in particular, as people people of faith, we should want to be known as truth tellers. Mm-hmm. Then we have to moderate and modulate and and self filter in ways that our emotions don't always agree with. Um, but in the long term, if we want to be sort of trusted voices in these various spheres, that's that's one approach to to, to doing it is is um, not overstating or understating the case as best we can. That's good. All right, all right. So uh, that's that's pretty good. I mean, like you know, I. I you made a great case for the tweet as well as a pretty good case for why it didn't go. <laughs> it's still in the draft, so you never know. Um, but I got more. I got more. Here's another one. Let's see what you got. Yeah. Tell the truth. They'll either reject you or respect you. But we owe each other our honesty, no matter how welcome or unwelcome it is. Well, hang on. That's Tell solid. That's solid yeah, all yeah, the way yeah. through. So I love the first two parts. Tell the truth. They'll either reject you or respect you. That is that is that is our story on this podcast, right? Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> we've seen it up close. We've seen the rejection uh, or uh, the exclusion and the embrace, as Miroslav Volf would put it. Um, but it's the second part. But we owe each other our honesty. Again, anticipating the pushback. Do we really owe each other honesty? Or to put it a different way, how much honesty do we owe one another, for instance, mm-hmm. if it's okay. if it's an abusive, you know, situation, whether emotional or physical abuse, right? How much real honesty do you owe your abuser? Certainly about the harm they're causing, mm-hmm. but you know, there's their self protection there as well, um, and and to tone it down, just to <laughs> not to look at just the extreme cases, uh, you know, there's there's a prudence to to how much we reveal and share with one another and we have circles of trust right so uh you and i both go back goodness almost almost a decade now almost right years, and yeah. <laughs> i can tell you stuff uh in 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 all honesty and in confidence that that i know it's it's safe but we don't owe the same level of honesty to other people whether mm-hmm. that's a coworker or a boss or the the person who's um you know, serving you at, at, at the grocery store, whatever it might be. Uh, so, so I would just trying to wrestle with that language, but the reason I said it, we owe each other our honesty is that at the end of the day, sometimes that's all we have. Hmm. That's all we have to offer. 
And it's, it's, it's only fair to offer it, even if it's in a case, let's say there's some sort of argument or conflict um, where you don't particularly like one another, where, um, you know, something's falling apart in, in, it could be a business relationship or a personal relationship, whatever it might be. What, even, even for your enemy, there's a certain level, there's a certain level at which you can say, I owe you my honesty. I, mm. I owe you the truth. And, and at least you can deal with reality as it is, uh, whether we agree or disagree. So that's what I was trying to convey in some way, shape or form. That's I think you know, I'm just workshopping a little bit. I, I would like to tweak, tweak, tweet that after I tweak that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're overthinking. See, that's the thing. Some of these, man, I, I, I thought this might be the case. I think there's probably some you got in, in uh, ready and wait, lying in wait, but uh, maybe you might be overthinking a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's, that's, that's undoubtedly the case. I would rather be overthinking it than underthinking it in most cases, Ooh, just man. because this particular platform is particularly unforgiving. Yes. <laughs> like, like to the extent that people are, are, are actually accurate about any sort of cancel culture, you can see it very clearly on Twitter, where if you say the wrong thing or even uh, the, the right thing at the wrong time sometimes, and people it's a pylon a lot of times. And, yeah. and these are people's faves, you know, these are the blue check verified folks. These are the folks who've, you know, written the books or been on television or whatever it might be. These are music stars and actors and everything like that. But if, if, if you say the wrong thing on this particular platform, Oh boy. Um, yeah, you're going to be dealing with it a long, long time. So I'm, I'm especially circumspect on Twitter. I'm a little bit looser on Facebook because you got more space to explain things. And then Instagram is just my happy place. I hardly <laughs> post about like racial stuff on right. Instagram. It's, you know, you'll get some stuff about my books and maybe you'll get like a screenshot of uh, a tweet or something that I put out, but that's only occasionally. Most of the time it's, it's just, you know, I try to I try to have one social media platform <laughs> that's not so heavy. Just a little corner of the internet that's just for you, like a little yeah, little yeah. vacation you know, spot. Yeah. <laughs> pictures of my my you know uh, cats and whatnot. So. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. No, that, but, but that does make sense. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that, right? Like even just the practice of having these ready and, and doing that, that additional thought uh, work before putting it out to the world. I mean, to some extent, the tweet almost challenges itself from that standpoint, right? Because you're, you, you've got kind of this message, but you're not putting it out there. But, that's right. But, that's right. But, but there in that moment is like, well, do you owe this? Do you owe this to people? And what do we actually owe to people from that standpoint when it comes to, uh, you know, especially on a social media, um, how much, you know, we, we talked about, Oh man, our our last episode that we did for uh, Once Upon a Time in Wakanda, we talked about um, you know Chadwick's death and how he kept his story very close to his chest to the point where we were all you know shocked uh, that he died. I mean, and there was a lot of speculation and that and you know and actually when you go back and look at some of his interviews and his clips, you kind of start piecing together what he was walking through. At least you know uh, from a from a very very far off posture. Uh, but the reality is that he didn't know us that story. He didn't know us his cancer journey. Like that, that, that wasn't necessarily something we needed to know about. He wanted to play that close to the chest and he has a right to do that. You know, just because somebody right. is a public figure, we don't necessarily have a right to whatever they're going through or whatever their challenges are, or whatever that, uh, yeah, truth, so to speak that they're 
kind of hanging on to. Um, and so anyway, I, all right, now I'm challenging your tweet from a different, (laughs) that's maybe this is the way we do it. It's like, it's like we get, we, we, we get together and we, and we workshop these tweets together. There you go. That that could be a series in and of itself. That would be hilarious. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. All right, what you got next? So I've got a whole bunch of stuff on like critical race. Theory. Oh, he said it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and our downloads just shot through the roof. <laughs> you know, and 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 I don't know precisely why I haven't tweeted some of these. I mean, it's not like I don't know. I don't know. So here's one. Um, what really, really seems to make some folks mad by whom I mean white people, um, mad about critical race theory and lots of other scholarship on race is the reality that white people can say and do racist things without even knowing it. But then the, here's, here's why I didn't tweet this one is, is I haven't worked out all of the theology, um, mm. in my head. So, so the follow-up tweet is, but we mess up all the time without realizing the harm we're doing and this is what I th- I want to work out theologically because I think it's really profound. And if you start to use it and 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 work it out, just 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 give at- original attribution to this podcast episode. This <laughs> is this: the Bible even makes provisions for if quote the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. That's from Leviticus four uh, verse thirteen a. Listen to the the community sins unintentional. Listen to this whole thing. The community. So talking about the, the the idea of corporate and communal sin, and not just individual sin, which is a evangelical trope, right? Like we're only responsible, we're only ever responsible for our individual actions, and and there's nothing of uh, a communal responsibility for, uh, particularly for wrongdoing. But it says the community sins. And then it, it it delineates the type of sin unintentionally. It's an unintentional, I didn't mean to do it. My intent was not malicious sin. But notice it still calls it sin. It doesn't say that because it's unintentional, it's okay. It says it's a sin. It was just an unintentional sin. Mm. And then it goes on to say, and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. That's what makes it a sin. It's still forbidden in the Lord's commands, even if you didn't intend to break the Lord's command. And so there's an actual sacrifice for that. There's an actual uh, ritual to atone for that. And then, of course, in the broad sweep of Christianity, the ultimate eschatological sacrifice is Jesus Christ himself to atone not just for the sins that we commit individually and intentionally, but for sins that we commit communally and unintentionally too. And if that is the case, if the Bible makes that clear, even in the Old Testament, 
then wouldn't it stand to reason that in a society built around this idea that people with a certain amount of melanin in their skin have uh, more rights and more privileges and more property than people with more melanin in their skin, and, and, and folks who didn't even create those rules get caught up in those categories, white, black, more melanin, less melanin, wouldn't it stand to reason that you could be part of a community that even if unintentionally still commits sins like favoritism and discrimination and prejudice? And why should that be so hard to understand when critical race theory or some other um, uh, explanation for racism says, yeah, if, if you're in this system, even if you didn't create the rules, you're benefiting from it, even if it's unintentional, that should be a, a, a concept that Christians can grasp. And that's all I'm trying to say. It's, it's wild, man. That's the, the, the tension that has existed for... Man, when when did the witch hunt start? Do you remember when when, when did the well publicly it, it politically started um, October 2020 when uh, Christopher Rufo made an appearance on Fox News yeah, and literally not, called the yeah. president to do an executive order. Right, but right, it started right, right. in Christian circles. You see, that's what I'm asking. Can, that's what yeah. I'm asking. <laughs> I'm saying when did we see the pitchforks and the torches? I think it was as far back as like 2014. Honestly, that um, about right. There's there's it, 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 there's these ideas of cultural Marxism that started to creep up. There was another. YouTuber slash podcaster who got a hold of us, um, our, our, our episode, and uh, started bringing out these theories and it's sort of more from there, but it, it, at least back to sort of the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. That's right. I mean, like it, what's wild is seeing, and I know exactly why you have so many tweets on this subject that have never been tweeted, <laughs> right? Like I, I get it because while we're kind of doing the work here, uh, where we're trying to address racism in the church, we're trying to address racism in America from a biblical perspective, from a Christian worldview. Uh, what happens is the powers that be that don't like that try to change the conversation, right? And by doing that, they start hitting us with, oh, this sounds too much like critical race theory. And so now they want us to bait critical race theory with them as opposed to actually doing what we're supposed to be doing, what we're trying to do. And then it's like, okay, if we dive into this, then we can't do the work. In fact, we're actually aggressively playing into their hands. <laughs> do you know what right. I mean? <laughs> like right. it's extremely frustrating, but what has been mildly cathartic as this has become like a national political thing is it kind of like to some extent proves that point that this was never actually something that was like a, a extreme issue in the church or, or something to be concerned about. This was always a political token. And so when you, you actually see like, you know, uh, Fox News now like blasting it out and, you know, uh, like just the, the the witch hunt has spilled out from the church and just has gone everywhere. It's like, all right, well, takes the pressure off some of us. For, for, you know, a That's right. I mean, it's, 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 it's baldly a power grab, right? right? It's baldly about stoking fear so you can whip up your base so you can, you know, do whatever. Right. So uh, but I like my soapbox to all the journalists out there, all the religion reporters, is that this started in churches. This started in far right fundamentalist, oftentimes evangelical leaning, mostly white churches. And whatever we're seeing in the political sphere, 
that is sort of a, a, a ripple effect of of what was going on. And and I make this point again and again is like we saw this literally with the Civil War in the 19th century, where in the lead up to the actual military conflict, you saw the conflict playing out in churches and denominations with uh, Methodists and, and Baptists and Presbyterians all splitting along sectional lines over the issue of race-based chattel slavery. And then it broke out into war. And then it was a huge political issue in this election or that election. It had already been brewing for decades and decades within faith communities. And and just another plug <laughs> for, for the people who report the news to get really, really good and much develop much more facility in understanding and translating the religious landscape of our nation. So wild, man. I mean, it's like, you know, you speaking of correlations, you almost have, it's like this one drop, drop theological rule, right? Like, oh, well, if you use this terminology, this sounds like critical race theory. Therefore, it's entirely contaminated. You believe with everything. You know what I mean? Like they they paint you in that massive broad brushstroke and it's like, okay, (laughs) like, no, three three plus four does equal seven, but if just because three is another equation doesn't mean it always equals seven. You know what I mean? Like, that's good. That's like, good. And I'm not a numbers guy. That's good. Well, you know um, I'm not either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you do, do you want to pull from this treasure trove? Do you, what 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 more do you have in this one? Because I know you got a bunch. I've, I've got yeah. I've got a bunch more. I've got I've got one for the black folks. Um, refusing to overwork is really an anti-racist act. White supremacy has always exploited black labor. It is an act of love and liberation to set boundaries that ensure your physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Hashtag rest. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so, so I'm a chronic overworker. Um, but it wasn't really until recently that I put it in the context of racism and white supremacy where burnout is, is actually in a, in a way a continuation of slavery where we are forced involuntarily to labor and expend all of our best physical, mental, emotional energy hmm. in the pursuit of what, <laughs> you know, maybe it's a paycheck to put food on the table. There's certainly an, an understandable aspect to that, but, but it's, it's really this hustle sort of culture and the idea that, that my worth is wrapped up in my work. Um, and for, for black people and people of color, we can't ignore the history of the context around the exploitation of our labor. And so it's actually not just a message about overwork. It's a, it's it's more I th- profoundly a message about taking care of ourselves uh, as an anti-racist act. Because in a society where racism, one of the hallmarks of racism was the exploitation of black labor and black output and black work then what is truly anti-racist, what truly pushes back against those forms of racism is actually preserving our labor Mm. and pacing ourselves and resting and refilling and and serving from a place of abundance and fullness and not a place of emptiness and, and weakness. So 
that's where setting boundaries can be uh, uh, an anti-racist act. That's where uh, taking a break or a vacation or unplugging from social media can be um, uh, an act that pushes against the the white supremacist um, culture that says um, you are only valuable in, in terms of your output. Mm. Uh, you are only precious in terms of your productivity. And that's just not true. Uh, as the As the trope goes, but there's a lot of truth to it. We are human beings, not human doings. <laughs> and I'll add one more layer to to this particular tweet. Refusing to overwork is really an anti-racist act. Hmm. The way that sh- strikes me is, is even in fighting racism and promoting racial justice, we have to be conscious of the ways we might be replicating racism with our overwork. We can be unwittingly, unintentionally, back to the unintentional stuff again, um, repeating the same uh, harmful principles that that white supremacy foists on us, even when we're trying to fight white supremacy, which means as we record these podcasts, as we, uh, uh, you know, put blogs on the witness, as we uh, bring in our first class of witness fellows, as we uh, tweet out things and and whatnot, as we are doing everything that we can um, through the witness or through whatever organization or efforts that you're putting forth, as we're doing everything we can to fight racism, we can still be, we can exploit ourselves. And we can play right into the idea that um, our labor is what is paramount and what is important over our existence, over Mm -hmm. our relationships, over our character, right? So even in fighting racism, we need to be careful not to replicate racism, specifically in the ways that we can work ourselves into exhaustion, panic attacks, mental health issues, uh, all in the name of doing good. And this folks have probably heard this before, but I heard it again recently. And it just, it just struck me in a new way because I've been thinking about all this. It's like Jesus had the same 24 hours that everyone else did. And he only had about 33 years on earth, but that was enough time to do everything that God the Father set out for God the Son to do. Mm, wow. Hmm. And so our little 24 hours, our little however many years on earth, it is enough time to do whatever God has planned for us to do. Hmm. Hmm. And we don't need to overwork ourselves to the bone to try to squeeze out more productivity in the time we have allotted. That's not the kind of life I think Jesus wants us to live, and to the extent that we have to live it, it's probably due to some form of injustice uh, mm. that needs addressing. But but it's just a good reminder that um, life isn't all about labor. Uh, some of it, a good portion of it, but not only about labor. See, that's really good, man. I, is it? <laughs> I feel like the the tweet again in in. <laughs> in its own uh, uh, merits is making the argument for why it never actually has seen the light of day because you don't want the additional labor that comes from the debate that's going to follow. <laughs> there is an element of self-preservation. Yes. Right. 
Uh, all right, man. Let's get one more in. Let's get one more in. What, okay, what one more in. Okay. All right. This one is a quote from James Cone. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. And that, exactly. That... <laughs> Always comes labor there. Um, uh, but this is what it says. It says, to ignore black theology is the easy way out. Hmm. It is analogous to whites moving into suburbia because they cannot deal with the reality of the black ghetto in the city. Hmm. Hashtag theological white flight. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Theological white flight. So, so, you know, Cone is saying to ignore black theology is the easy way out. It is essentially um, the, the intellectual or the theological version of white flight from the city to the suburbs. Hmm. Easier to, leave the city altogether than to deal with the problems, many of which you or your compatriots created, hmm. right? The, the concentrated poverty, the lack of housing, the, the, the lack of healthy food options, the underfunded education, right? All of that at some point is by design. And when you throw all of those things together and then uh, literally draw lines, geographic lines around where these, um, uh, uh, man, these 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 characteristics persist, then it's a recipe for all kinds of of social harm. And rather than deal with that social harm, well, there's a there's a suburb, or there there's an expert, right. there's a, a yard, there's a three bedroom house, there's better funded schools, all outside of the city. So I'm just going to turn a blind eye and leave. Um, and in a similar way. I think uh, folks have done that with uh, theologies from oppressed communities, in particular, as James Cone is writing, uh, black theology. Hmm. So, so, and, and I tell this story all the time. The only time James Cone came up in my five years of seminary getting a master's in divinity was in lessons about what not to do. It was never a lesson about what we could learn from black theology, never mm. a lesson about what we could learn from theologians mm. such as Cone, who's just one of many, right? Right, right. Um, it, 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 and, then, and then there was this, the, the subtlety of it's all theology until it's black theology. Hmm. It's all theology <laughs> until it's Latin American theology. Right, right. It's all theology if it's coming from the European reformers. It's all theology if it's coming from white people in the United States. It only needs a label <laughs> when it's not European or not white. And 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 again, this idea of theological white flight is that you seldom deal with any theology that's 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 coming from a marginalized or an oppressed people group. And part of the reason is what we're bringing up in the way we talk about God, the way we understand God, the way we do church and fellowship and community. Part of what we're bringing up is a critique on those European and white theologies and the way they do church, the way mm. they do Christianity, the mm. way they understand God that allows them in some way, shape or form to justify or perpetuate racial injustice and white supremacy. Mm. 
So easier not to deal with those tricky issues that these black and brown folks are bringing up. It's easier to sort of run away from it in a form of theological white flight, just as they did from the cities to the suburbs, rather than deal with the problems, many of which uh, their their favorite theo- theologians helped create. Mm. Mm. Man. Okay. So it's interesting, right? Because I, I know why you didn't tweet that one yet, but... <laughs> But that one seems like you should <laughs> worthy to be uh, tweeted for sure. Yeah, I think I think that one can make it out for sure, man. Um, all right, so so let me ask you this. All right, so we we've gone through some of your your tweets that you've had kind of waiting in the wings, uh, and I mean, like, I think that many of them, like I said, do speak for themselves in terms of you know, like it, it's easy to kind of like say say you know see the the gears. You've kind of like pulled back the hood of the Jamar Tisby brain, right? And we can kind of see your gears at work <laughs> and see kind of the uh, what, what your process is as you've been Brightening thinking. Brightening sight, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious though, for you, just kind of putting it out there in this context, is that does that does that free them, so to speak? Like now are they out there or do you think that they still kind of are going to remain in this Twitter purgatory or what's what's your thoughts? Oh, like, if, 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 if this podcast episode goes viral, definitely, because people <laughs> have all the context they need <laughs> to do it. Um, no, some of them, like I've gotten to the point for sure where I, I, I'm not that concerned about enemies who will disagree with me. Like there's, there's just people out there who, because of what we stand for in terms of racial justice and Jesus, they're just going to be opposed to you. You can't satisfy those folks. Sure. I'm not concerned about that pushback. I just want to get the wording right for the people who who do ride with us, you know, who who already do rock with us mm-hmm. and and make sure I'm not putting out anything that's harmful, insensitive or even just confusing and could be misconstrued in ways that aren't helpful. So that's more my main concern rather than oh, I'm afraid what people think about me. No, I mean, by we we've crossed that bridge a bunch of times and <laughs> and there's going to be more to come, but uh, you know, for these particular tweets, it's more about just getting the wording just right so that, you know, you avoid any unnecessary controversies or, you know, uh, misunderstandings. That's good, man. I think you've also just kind of displayed that for folks, too, that, I mean, we we can all be a little too quick to hit the tweet button. We can all be a little too quick to jump in. And without, you know, kind of thinking about what is the thought process, but, you know, before putting this out here, because um, I'm, I'm telling you, man, like there's there's. I don't know. We, you know, you've heard me say this before, but we all have our parts to play and it's, it's, there's not one magic tweet that's going to hit everybody the exact, you know, perfect enlightening way. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's just, it's just never going to happen. Um, and different people need different voices and they need different postures to be able to, to understand and to learn. I, I, as a student was really, I was a terrible student. If you put me in a classroom and sit me down, I will fall asleep. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. Like, it's just not how I learn. I've got to do, I've got to be active, mm. but we have kind of school set in kind of such a way that it's, it's kind of like a once, or at least when I was in school, this isn't necessarily still the case universally, but, uh, when I was in school, there was kind of like this one size fits all in education. The reality is we know better. We know that's not how people learn. And so, you know, in that same kind of way, uh, you know, there, 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 there is going to be no, no one magic tweet that is going to be universal. That's going to work for everybody, but it is going to work. You know, it is going to hit the, the people that need to be hit the right way, the right way, unless, you know, and, and this is the big question, unless it's one of those tweets that you just ultimately regret. And maybe that's a topic 
for another time. <laughs> and what, what are the tweets? <laughs> if these were the tweets that we never tweeted or that you never tweeted, what are the tweets that you regret? Well, so, the ones you wish you could take back. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, uh, well, you bring up one great final point is just that listen to multiple voices. That's mm-hmm. one other thing I love about social media and Twitter in particular. I can learn from a ton of people and I follow a lot of people uh, who have different perspectives. And, and that's what I think is, is healthy. It's the, it's the, you know, modern day Agora, the modern day meeting place and, 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 and debate, uh, uh, place, the marketplace of ideas kind of a thing. And so why not, um, you know, get a, as wide a variety as you can and heaven forbid you rely more on my voice and my tweets, uh, than, than you should. Uh, take advantage of the opportunity to learn from a bunch of different people with lots of different perspectives. That's good, man. Well, hey, speaking of which, where can people follow you, but not overly follow you? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, at Jamar Tisby on Twitter and Instagram, and then uh, facebook.com slash Jamar Tisby and the number one Jamar Tisby one. And then also, of course, social media information for The Witness as well. Y'all, Tyler will be back very, very soon. Uh, like I said, these are going to happen either from time to time or all at once. Uh, it'll be a surprise. It'll be either – it'll be – what you, you compared it to the popcorn and the M&Ms. Either you right. reached into the popcorn and you pulled out all the M&Ms at once or, or you only got this one and another one <laughs> might pop up in the future. So uh, be, be looking for these M&Ms uh, coming your way on Pass the Mic. And uh, I think, yeah, we'll see you next time on the next – Pass the the mic. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.